0: Back in 2002, it was genuinely revolutionary to say security isn't just about technology, it's about incentives and organizations and humans. Today, that's under Secretary Boilerplate here in Washington. But we haven't made that much progress about how do we translate that into action or change the underlying economics. One of the few things that we do know is that transparency moves us Closer in that direction than further away from it.
1: But we haven't made that much progress. How do we translate that into action or change the underlying economics? That's something Alan Friedman has been thinking about for years. He was one of the first, if not the first person to talk with me about the need for a mandatory software bill of materials to attach to all software back in 2017. When he was Director of Cybersecurity Initiatives for the U.S. Department of National Telecommunications and Information Administration. In today's show, we'll do a deep dive with Alan, tracing his path from doing economic research at Harvard in the early 2000s to becoming the country's most recognized advocate on SBOM legislation As the current senior advisor and strategist for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency of the United States government, you are listening to the untold stories of open source. This week, coming to you from the Linux Foundation office in New York City. Each week, we choose an open source project or a person behind a popular open source project to uncover its untold stories. Since you work with open source, and you do, whether you know it or not, you're in the right place. Napster was released on June 1st, 1999. The peer-to-peer streaming service is an infamous example of a disruptive technology that reshaped market dynamics overnight Millions of songs were shared by users around the world free of charge, and record companies were outraged at both Napster and its users. Alan Friedman decided to quantify these examples of disruption to see what result would emerge. In the late
0: 90s, my hair was a little bit longer and I was a little bit more of a cyber hippie or a techno hippie. One of the common things that folks on the net knew was that when a record company said that a downloaded record was stealing $20 from a record company. We knew intuitively as kids on the net that that wasn't true. Right. That information doesn't have the same value. And yet here we were making those same mistakes where the value of the R&D inputs wasn't the same thing as someone else stealing that data or accessing that data. But at the same time, it was in some ways more complicated because now you need to look at it through a lens of national competitiveness as well as corporate competitiveness. So these were really fun, sticky questions that didn't have a lot of data to support them. I had a lot of fun trying to take anecdotal data and turn that into simulation models to try to say something meaningful.
1: During this research, conflicts of interest were raised. Software teams have an objective, a roadmap, and a limited budget to reach their end goal. Short-term performance concerns can trump potential vulnerabilities. If
0: I'm on the security team, and i don't have good identity management or i don't have mfa set up on my production team then maybe a vulnerability isn't going to be the sort of thing that i'm going to prioritize fixing on my network especially if it's much more expensive to do that and i've got budget to do this other thing the challenge of thinking about the incentive world is back in 2002 it was genuinely revolutionary to say Security isn't just about technology. It's about incentives and organizations and humans. Today, that's under Secretary boilerplate here in Washington. But we haven't made that much progress about how do we translate that into action or change the underlying economics. One of the few things that we do know is that transparency moves us closer in that direction than further away from it.
1: Back when Alan was first asking these sticky questions about software security and market dynamics two decades ago, there was excitement and confidence around the future of open source. The traditional models would be destroyed and innovation would take its place. These visions were realized and markets were disrupted. The music industry rebounded from the Napster problem by creating a whole new business model. With affordable streaming services, peer-to-peer became less attractive to users, supply chains needed a similar paradigm shift.
0: I've got a few gray hairs in my beard. I do remember in the late 90s, people saying open source is going to completely destroy how traditional commercial software is made. And they were right. And I think we're all better off for that world, but we still need new models.
1: Allen fell in love with teaching when it meant collaborating, leading panels, and helping communities come together. Still, the academic world requires long periods of isolation, and he didn't want to be stuck in a room writing papers. So, he continued his academic pursuits, including dual roles at the Brookings Institution as Research Director for the Center of Technology and Innovation and Research Fellow for Governance Studies. He used his footing in both worlds to coordinate engagement between the policy and the technology communities. After a year as a research scientist at George Washington University in 2014, a new opportunity presented itself.
0: One of my old mentors approached me and said, hey, instead of just talking about security and economics, do you want to try to get involved and weigh in on the policy? It was very tempting to give it a try. When I first joined government, at NTIA, part of the Department of Commerce. I had no idea how long this was going to be. Was that
1: coincidental because of proximity of being at George Washington? Washington, D.C.,
0: you're always around government, especially Mm -hmm. in the policy world. The government and the broader public policy world is the focus. It's a company town. And indeed, it's very common for people in the research world to spend a tour in government. You spend two years So you can speak with a little more authority and get a more senior job. It's a natural career progression here in Washington. There was no guarantee that it was going to be something that I was going to stick with. In fact, When I joined commerce, I made a conscious decision to not get the very highest level of security clearance because I thought, well, maybe I'll want to leave government and write more papers and write more books and didn't want that restriction against what I was saying in the future.
1: Allen served as the Director of Cybersecurity Initiatives for the Department of Commerce, NTIA, from February 2015 to July 2021. He designed and ran the processes that brought together the industry, academia, and the hacker community to tackle key security supply chain issues.
0: We talked a lot about free and open source software. That term has come back into play recently as we worry about the security supply chain because there's a new term, there's freezing speech, freezing beer and freezing puppy. I love that model because one sort of follows that trajectory of our history, but also acknowledges that, oh, this is software that someone's responsible for it. If you want to use it in a meaningful way, that's the new challenge that we're facing around open source from a security perspective. What are the accountability models and who does it? If it's buyer beware, well, what does the buyer have to do?
1: The problem of accountability has only gotten worse over time with the mass adoption of open source. The mobilization plan reports that up to 90% of today's code bases contain open source components. A major software supplier revealed the severity of the problem to Allen.
0: Their product security team said, The flaws that our security team used to spend their time on used to be our own engineers. We would spend all our time fixing our own engineering mistakes. Over time, it became apparent that more and more of the time that the product security was spending was addressing the flaws from their upstream suppliers, especially from the open source components that they were using, because all commercial software vendors build their software on open source these days. and so They needed that visibility, but the one thing that they were concerned about was the customer support costs. They didn't want the transparency. If their S-bomb shows up and people say, aha, you're using OpenSSL, so it's going to be Heartbleed, Heartbleed all day long. If they had already done the homework to show that the heartbeat function wasn't in the software, and so the Heartbleed didn't affect their product, they didn't want the transparency to still make people worried. They didn't want the automated tooling to make their customers upset. It's a legitimate concern, right? The s is the superset of risk. The actual risk will almost certainly be smaller.
1: Allen was limited in his ability to draw in the major corporate players as an academic. Corporations often view scholarly research as a peripheral intellectual pursuit. Allen now had the power to attract the big fish as a government representative. If the future of software compliance were to be decided, you didn't want to be the one left behind.
0: Because we were the government, when we said, hey, let's have a conversation about X, that actually brought more people to the table than just a random person or a random university starting that conversation. And once we had the idea that, well, if the government's gonna do something, then the lobbyist for the big company is gonna come. Then we could go to independent security researchers or small businesses or other trade associations, they will listen, that company's gonna be there, so you should be in the room too. And that's how we would build a coalition.
1: That initial interest got people in the room, but then it was time to find a starting point with so many different players and conflicting interests the key was to find a lane that was open and steer into it. The first project this new coalition tackled back in 2015 was vulnerability disclosure. Vulnerability disclosure is the process of reporting information regarding weaknesses in applications, networks, operating systems, firmware, and business practices. Even this open lane had its obstacles to overcome. The
0: Department of Justice said, we don't want you to say anything about how vulnerabilities are discovered, the act of research, because there were laws on the books that they're responsible for to say certain types of hacking are still illegal. I understand that perspective and said, okay, we're going to focus on the collaboration and just ignore how the researchers found this information. So we can sort of find the open lane where there wasn't someone who had a vested interest in making sure that their mission stayed intact.
1: These early tests taught Alan the politics of working in government. In those days, there was still a lot of confusion around the issue. Alan was able to use this to his advantage by focusing on the shared positive outcomes of the initiatives.
0: One of the reasons we were able to move quickly is Most people in the U.S. government didn't really understand this issue and why it was so contentious. The ones that were interested actually appreciated a chance to engage. So, for example, the FDA, which regulates medical devices, in part due to some activists like Josh Corman, understood the importance of vulnerability disclosure and said, yeah, anything that produces work that we can work with our regulatees will be better off.
1: Allen needed to use this new approach at scale. Bringing together research communities, software companies, and big government is a recipe for conflict. The history between these parties created high levels of distrust and antagonism no party was eager to share with their perceived enemy.
0: The security research community had no reason to trust the government, right? They see the government is aligned with big companies. And meanwhile, the big companies saw that I had relationships with the hacker community. I'd known this community for a while, and so they were a little suspicious of the friendship.
1: The meetings were sometimes contentious and labeled a distraction from bigger problems. No one wanted to give ground. Alan was the linchpin at the center of this tension, trying to keep the wheels from falling off. It turns out that honesty about mutual distrust can be a good way to get things started.
0: One side stood up and said, we don't trust you. And the other side stood up and says, we don't trust you. It's only a slight exaggeration to say at a certain point, they looked across the room at each other and say, we're not so different, you and I.
1: We both hate freedmen." A weak supply chain affects everyone. That's the reality. Common ground started to emerge as the parties vented their individual worries. I statements turned into we statements. Eventually, people started to put aside their differences to create real change.
0: And so if you can find some of those people who say your vision of yourself is actually to not just say the same things that you've been saying, but to figure out what you can do to be a leader. That's what I think we were able to do at NTIA was to create that space for leadership. It wasn't about us finding the solution. It was about us creating a space where people could be creative and advance the ball.
1: Getting people together was a good starting point for conversation, but it wasn't enough to tackle the supply chain problem. Alan knew that change was needed at the structural level.
0: The challenge of being a policy entrepreneur is trying to figure out, okay, what will my next project be? I was looking around for... A project. I had a tool. The tool was I can convene. That won't solve all problems, right? There are problems where the convening isn't enough. You're going to need regulation. You can bring an different sides
1: together. What do you mean yes. by convene?
0: By convene, I mean, I can announce we're going to have a conversation on topic X. I can use my network to get the first set of participants. We can use the government bully pulpit to go around the world and talk about it and advance the cause. The tool we have is to say, let's build a community. That doesn't work for everything, but that really can work for a set of problems.
1: Building communities to tackle security issues quickly became an exercise in creating tools that could only solve a subset of problems, like plugging holes in a sinking ship still under attack. Software security requires bigger solutions, and that means government intervention.
0: At the time, we knew that vulnerabilities are not going away, and one of the big flaws is vulnerabilities are often buried in software. The other thing is there was a a growing appreciation in the fact that we knew nothing about the supply chain of software. One of the core arguments in favor of looking at this policy issue is transparency is one of the lightest touches you can have. Whether you're talking about government policy or contracts, just saying you don't have to do anything, you just have to tell me what's there is one of the lightest touches.
1: What does that even mean? You just have to tell me what's there. Doesn't everyone already know or keep and monitor the inventory of what's in their software systems? We'll find out as the S-bomb drops right after the break. You're listening to the story of just one of the 700 projects supported by the Linux Foundation. We are much more than Linux. Projects such as the Open Source Security Foundation, ONAP, Kubernetes, Hyperledger, and RISC-V all call the Linux Foundation home. If you're looking to contribute to an open source project, there are dozens that can use your help. If you have a project that needs support, bring your project to the Linux Foundation and have full access to the support resources we can provide. At the Linux Foundation we help open technology projects build world class open source software, hardware, data and standards communities. We'd like yours to be one of those communities. Go to LinuxFoundation.org to get started. That's LinuxFoundation.org. Ready or not, a bomb is about to drop. No, not that bomb, the S-Bomb. If you haven't heard of S-Bomb before, it's an anagram for software bill of materials. It's a list of the components present in a code base or application, including a list of various governing licenses. When you have a list like this, it's much easier to identify security risks and licensing conflicts in the software you purchase than having to reverse engineer the thing or, worse yet, know if you're using an open source component with a known vulnerability. Think about it like this supplying a bill of materials is standard equipment across most industries. If there's a car part that's deemed unreliable and it needs to be recalled, the manufacturer knows every part in every car they've manufactured. It knows which car that part was installed in. It knows which cars are shipped to which dealerships. It knows who owns the car and the contact info for that person. Complete traceability down to the smallest detail. Not so for software. The apps we use every day, whether for banking or game apps or any software you're using, are an ad hoc combination of proprietary, third-party, and open-source code. A majority of that code, between 80 and 90 percent, is open-source. It's easy for developers to lose track of the ingredients as the list piles up, which results in software that has the potential to make your systems vulnerable without you knowing it. Alan's mission to standardize S-bombs can be traced back to those early days, and his curiosity about the relationship between software security and market dynamics.
0: How do we talk about the relationship between the attacker and the defender if we find a flaw in software that both we and our adversary uses? Can the mathematics of game theory and economics inform this trade-off between attack and defense? There was a lot of fun work to cover in the range of economics of security, but at the time I was not one of the finer minds of my generation in either economics or computer security. So I had fun playing between them.
1: But it wasn't as simple as changing laws. Lobbyists rejected the idea of government regulation, and Allen had his own hesitations about interfering with market dynamics with limited information. Back in 2014, there was no reliable way to scale SBOM regulation. There was even
0: an attempt to put it in regulation. Back in 2014, some security activists convinced a congressman to say everything that the Department of Defense buys has to have an S-bomb. The IT industry nuked that idea from orbit. They were very strongly against it, to the point that when I started talking about S-bomb at NTIA back in 2017... I had some very smart people who had been mentors to me say, this issue is too radioactive in Washington. The lobbyist community is against it. It'll be a third rail. Don't touch it. A legitimate reason why we should be been worried about putting this in regulation is because we didn't really know how to do it at scale. Personally, from a policy perspective, we should be worried about putting things into regulation when we don't have a common vision about what it looks like.
1: These worries started to compound. Beyond the practical problems of implementing change, there were market participants who might feel threatened by streamlined transparency. Software composition analysis tools already existed as a paid service. We want
0: a certain amount of enlightened
1: self-interest.
0: The trick is to help people appreciate the difference between short-term biz dev and longer-term appreciation of where the market is going. I think the source composition analysis world, synopsis, sonotype, folks like that, was actually one of the areas that I was worried about because we were suggesting that independent software vendors... Start to give away what the SCA tools were providing a service for. We're charging for. I was a little worried that they would be people who would say, "Oh, we shouldn't do this."
1: Alan had overestimated some of the hurdles. Market participants that he thought would be threatened by SBOMs were actually excited at the prospect of bringing their expertise to the initiative. The SBOM was becoming interoperable.
0: The value add that these organizations have is the intelligence. What do I do with this data now that I have it? That helped nudge both me and the broader community the idea that SBOM should be a data layer. And then we can compete on top of that. And different people will have different solutions around that. That's one of those great stories where the process can evolve and have different requirements.
1: The message of the SBOM was less daunting and more attractive as it became a complement to existing tools and a building block for corporations. This new mindset pushed SBOM beyond its early roadblocks.
0: All commercial software vendors build their software on open source these days. And so they needed that visibility. But the one thing that they were concerned about was the customer support costs. They didn't want the transparency. If their s shows up and people say, aha, you're using OpenSSL, so it's going to be Heartbleed, Heartbleed all day long. If they had already done the homework to show that the heartbeat function wasn't in the software, and so the Heartbleed didn't affect their product, they didn't want the transparency to still make people worried. They didn't want the automated tooling to make their customers upset. It's a legitimate concern, right? The SBOM is the superset of risk. The actual risk will almost certainly be smaller.
1: A VEX model is a machine readable way of saying that your software is not affected by a vulnerability. It's just one example of a parallel tool that vendors could actually want to implement. The SBOM needed to be pitched as a necessary foundation to bring other ambitions to life. While S-bombs aren't going to be the most important thing to a developer or startup team, the components themselves can be vital and potentially dangerous to hundreds of developers and thousands of users. Driving this message home has been central to Alan's mission. Think about what it's like when you're shopping at a grocery store. Is it easy to determine what's in that box of snacks you picked up? Yeah, it is
0: you go to the store, you buy a Twinkie, come comes with a list of ingredients. Why don't we expect that same level of transparency of the software that runs our critical infrastructure, that manages our data? But the other thing to note about that list of ingredients is a list of ingredients won't keep you on a diet. By itself, it will not protect your family from allergies, allergens. It will not help you keep a religious lifestyle or a dietary restriction. But Good luck doing any of those without the list of ingredients. It is the necessary but not sufficient side of things. The other analogy I like to use is something that's familiar to everyone in security CVE, Common Vulnerability Enumeration. It's the identifier that we give our vulnerabilities. Now, giving a vulnerability a number doesn't protect anyone, doesn't keep your network safe, doesn't save anything, but That common string, that shared frame of reference has allowed an entire tooling ecosystem to grow up. And having that management, having that frame of reference that we can all use means that we can all build these tools and have them interopt and they can plug into each other. That's really what we're trying to get to with SBOM is it's that layer of shared data in an anticipated fashion that allows us to start to build new tools and new processes.
1: Since 2017, the government's goal has been to create a reliable but dynamic infrastructure. The challenges around data management and the mapping between systems will take time and creativity, but that's just the plumbing side of things. The common foundation is the key. This is the case when looking at two competing SBOM data formatting tools, SPDX and Cyclone DX. What's the government's position when it comes to competing ideas and goals that are similar?
0: The government's interest in this case is to make sure that there is interoperability. We've been very satisfied in some of the volunteers from both communities working together to make sure there is some interoperability. I do get asked, hey, wouldn't this be easier if we had a single data format? And it's possible. But on the other hand, having projects out there that are nominally competitors means that they're driving innovation and they're driving new features and they're helping the world expand into the different corners of the software ecosystem. The other thing is we know that neither one in the short or medium term is going to be the dominant data format. Vendors are increasingly saying, we're going to use both because again, it's the same core basic data and different people say, well, I want this feature, I want that feature, so I'm going to use this one or that one. But the basics really are quite similar. Large customers are aware that they're probably going to get S bombs in both formats, and that's just going to be part of the data plumbing side of things. Our interest is to make sure they're compatible, and we're going to continue to work with both communities and acknowledge that the US government endorses both.
1: A vulnerability linked to the open-source logging library Apache Log4J2 has been actively exploited since December 1st, 2021, impacting digital products and services worldwide, so there's plenty of demand for security and accountability. The problem continues to be the confidence in the solutions. Last May, President Biden signed an executive order with initial minimum requirements for transparency in the software supply chain. Alan is using his network to bring creative people together to create new models of accountability for our critical infrastructure. Allen's efforts come at a critical moment. The stakes are high. The world is growing more dependent upon digital applications. More data has been recorded in the last five years than in all of previous human history. New technologies are emerging. Like it or not, we are entering the metaverse. Countries are adopting digital currencies as legal tender. Innovation is rapidly outpacing security, leaving us increasingly vulnerable. It's up to people like Alan Friedman to think of a future vision for software to help people make informed decisions.
0: Post-Log4J, the world has again rediscovered that the security of the open source software on which we depend is not quite as seamless as we had thought. This isn't a new thing, but it's got the attention at the highest levels of government. The problem is at the pure demand end of the spectrum, which is to say, customers of software, users of software, they're willing to pay for it, whether for proprietary software or for support licenses, but they are going to need certain assurances. They're going to need certain accountability. That's one of the things that we do need some fundamental creative thinking around. How do we think about this from a market perspective of driving accountability upstream to drive responsiveness and resiliency and investment in security? SBOM is such a huge part of that. When we discover a flaw, how do we find out where it is? How do people figure out that they're not affected? I think Linux Foundation is going to play an indispensable role in thinking through creative ways that we don't already have. At the end of the day, we need more investment, more smart people thinking about it, so that people can make informed decisions.
1: Our program today was created with help from the team at the Linux Foundation, including James McLeod from the Phenos Project, Chip Stewart for promotional management of the series, Melissa Schmidt for graphic design and the cool logo, and Noah Lehman helping with social media promotions. The script for this episode was provided by Mark Levesque. Our website, where you can listen to all of the episodes of the Untold Stories of Open Source, completely ungated and free, can be found on our GitHub project or wherever you subscribe to your favorite podcasts. Speaking of subscribing... We'd very much appreciate you smashing that button and becoming part of our 6,500 downloads and climbing community. I'm Mark Miller, back next week with another untold story of open source.